All right, let's begin with prayer. Oh, Heavenly King, the comfort of the Spirit of truth, hearts ever present to build all things, treasure blessings, and give our life, come and abide in us, cleanse us from every impurity, and save our souls over the In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So this is the third class that we are doing for catechism. Uh, last week, we discussed in kind of a... 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 foot up in the air. Uh, Look at the Old Testament, Genesis and Exodus specifically. uh, And looked at the themes of Adam, what Adam and Eve failed uh, to do in being made in the image and likeness of God. Uh, And then what God began doing with Israel, calling Abraham, etc. And we specifically, Abraham out from amongst the nations in order to become and create uh, a place and a space and a people where God could dwell with his people. And we saw in Moses, especially in Exodus, uh, God calling out Israel to be a kingdom of priests and coming and dwelling with them, giving them the pattern of the temple, of the tabernacle that they were to build Uh, the way in which he was to dwell amongst them and specifically ended on the meal that Moses and Aaron and the elders had with God on the side of the mountain. The rest of the Old Testament in many ways just kind of unfolds from what we found uh, with Adam and Eve and the reverberations that we talked about, how this kind of basic same sin patterns division problems that came up throughout the book of Genesis and then God's work in Exodus to bring his people to himself. Uh, As you work through the rest of the Old Testament uh, and things come up, uh, we see the development of and God, I would say, blessing, but also giving a warning about the development of the monarchy within Israel, telling them if you get a king, he's going to treat you like Pharaoh, which is what Saul turns around and does. Uh, he takes money, he takes people, he, he does all the things that Pharaoh had done. Uh, and we see throughout uh, the history of Israel a kind of continuation of Adam being called to be a certain people. Uh, we talked about it under the, the titles of, that they were to be a royal people, that they were to be a priestly people, they were also to be prophetic people because they were to speak the truth of God to all of the nations. Well, if you know or are familiar with the history of Israel, they never really quite, they would have like little high points where they like seem to get it together and then it just kind of falls apart constantly. Idolatry being one of the main problems. The loss of the worship of God. The Psalms are an incredibly important part of the Old Testament. When I was growing up, the Psalms were kind of an enigmatic. I didn't really know what to do with the book of Psalms. But the Psalms have always been, for the church, the basic framework for worship, just as it is the worship uh, in the temple in the Old Covenant. And if you could look for the theme of the Psalms, this is the kingship of God. And it is the kingship of God, his kingdom, that then we see as Israel goes off into captivity and as they come back and you have the later prophets, they start foretelling a time when God is going to uh, come and be with his people and restore uh, what had been lost. When we look at especially, I think, of the prophet Isaiah, And we see of the promises of God coming to restore his people, to restore the kingdom that had been broken up uh, and lost. Because after, right, you have Saul, he was kind of a disaster. You have David, he does all right, but he's also kind of a disaster towards the end of things. And it's right after David uh, that you get Solomon, and then you just start seeing the tearing apart of the kingdoms and everything, just idolatry, all of these things just come sweeping back in. When you get to the prophets, we have, I'm going to read a little passage from Isaiah. And this is the 25th chapter of Isaiah. The almighty Yahweh will prepare for all the nations on this mountain, a banquet of rich foods, 
a banquet of preserved wines, a spread of rich foods and preserved wines. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering that is over all peoples, even the covering woven on all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe clean the tears from upon all faces, and the shame of his people will he will remove from upon all the earth. For God, Yahweh, has spoken. We are brought again to a mountain. And in this prophecy, and this goes throughout the book of Isaiah, uh, and it shows up in the Gospels, you have the prophecy of a time when God is going to prepare a banquet. And it's a banquet for all nations. It is a banquet that is going to be with wines and rich foods. He's going to destroy uh, the coverings or the separations of all of the nations. And I think most importantly, uh, the prophet says he's going to swallow up death forever. Israel looked for the reign of God, the restoration of God. And in the prophet Isaiah, you see that this is going to happen in such a way that it's going to destroy death. So as we go through the rest of the Old Testament and come and then look at the, the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, we see these themes of banquet being woven throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's feeding people left and right. He's being criticized because he sits and feasts with those that he's not supposed to. And ultimately, we have, as he comes to the Passover meal that he shares with his disciples, uh, that he is instituting a particular meal that has the remembrance of his death. And then as we go through the book of Acts and you look at the Pauline epistles, you have the same themes of basically there's going to be the breaking of bread and the consecration of wine because the messianic banquet that our Lord Jesus Christ has uh, served for us, has prepared for us, is what we as Orthodox Christians come to every divine liturgy. We are coming to the mountain which the rich foods and the wines are being put before us because in this celebration he has destroyed death. He has trampled down, as we sing in the Paschal Traparian, death by death. It is out of the womb of the Old Testament that we come to understand, and we talked about this a little bit uh, last time, how we're to understand what it means that God dwells with us and how God is present to us specifically in a meal, that God gives himself in this meal, that he invites us to partake in this meal. St. Nicholas Cavasilis, when he talks about the Orthodox Divine Liturgy, he writes, the essential act in the celebration of the Holy Mysteries, the Holy Mysteries, that this is, you've probably heard the word sacrament, right? This is a word that is rooted in the Latin. Uh, for the Orthodox Church, although I will use the word sacrament, we don't really have that language per se. We use it, but more true to the tradition of the Orthodox Church is the Holy Mysteries. Uh, now, mystery doesn't mean like I don't understand exactly. Uh, mystery can have like mystery, I don't know, mystery science theater, like uh, mystery is this kind of like, you know, fog and, you know, fedoras and stuff. But I, I don't, mystery here means that the mystery that God is present uh, in this particular act, we will say this about all, I'm going to use sacraments or mysteries of the church. Christ is present and active in baptism. He's present and active in chrismation. He's present and active in the divine, divine liturgies, in the mystery that is the encounter with God. So the essential act in the celebration of the holy mysteries is the transformation of the elements into the divine body and blood. Its aim is the sanctification of the faithful, who through these mysteries receive the remission of their sins, the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. The purpose of the divine liturgy is not only we can focus on the transformation as we believe uh, 
uh, as we hear the words of institution and the blessing of the bread and the wine, that is the transformation of the elements into the divine body and blood. But that is not the end goal. It's not just that we do that, but that the point of the sanctification of the gifts is then the sanctification of the faithful. Because we have to partake in the meal with Jesus Christ. And it's through this meal that we receive the remission of, their, of our sins, the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to underline, this is why we're going to look at, when we're talking about what salvation in Christ is, uh, there's kind of a double purpose in doing the anaphora. One, we kind of go over and sketch salvation history and what the church uh, Praise. There is an ancient saying in the church, lex rondi, lex crendendi, which means what we believe is what we pray. So if we want to know what it is that we believe about baptism, we go and look at the baptismal text and we say, okay, and you'll realize basically it's a collage of scripture put together so that you understand what is going on uh, in baptism. And the same as we look to the heart of the divine liturgy, the anaphora, uh, the anaphora means the offering up. Uh, you even see this motion uh, where the deacon, if I didn't have a deacon, then I would bring, uh, elevate uh, the bread and the wine. Uh, but in the anaphora, we see uh, exactly where the sanctification and transformation of the gifts where we are to receive and the, com- com- the completion of the entire point of scripture (laughs) that we enact uh, that Christ acts through the Eucharist in saving us so I'm to be even more specific a lot of times we think about salvation is that we've gotten ideas about Jesus and the Orthodox Church you have to know who Jesus Christ is but you also come to know him by actually receiving him into your body so that you are, in eating that meal with him, you are receiving the forgiveness of sins, uh, that you are partaking in his life, death, burial, resurrection, the ascension at the right hand, the second glory is coming, that you are participating in his reality. So that means when we talk about like the, the Eucharist as a sacrifice, we're talking about the sacrifice that Christ gave once and for all on Calvary, But we are always representing or uh, bringing that reality down into the bread and wine so that when we partake in it, we are partaking in his life, death, burial, resurrection. This is what the expectation of Israel is. This is what the whole kind of arc of scripture is, is that God is going to return and be with his people. He's not going to be with them because he gave them like a pamphlet or a tract or, you know, even scripture. He is present to us in scripture, but he's going to actually be with us here and he's going to feed us with himself. So we're going to look at the anaphora of St. Basil. This is a little bit more uh, in depth. Uh, We do the anaphora of St. Basil only a few times a year. It is always the Sundays during Lent that we do the Liturgy of St. Basil. The Liturgy of St. Basil is basically the same thing as the Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, just some of the prayers are changed. So this morning we did the Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, so the anaphora, we did the anaphora of St. John Chrysostom. This is more in-depth and longer. So I would like for us uh, to go through this Yes. Does everybody have a copy? Does anyone need a copy? Leo? Okay. So this is from Basel? Yes, this is from Basel. (coughs) Harmony, would you like one of these? So the... Divine liturgy, as we saw even in Exodus, it began uh, the event or the presence of God in Exodus began with the reading, uh, the affirmation and saying amen to what God had revealed and said. And then there is a shift and then there is the meal. In the same way in the divine liturgy, we have at the beginning the, the antiphons where we're singing psalms. 
We then have, uh, at the end of that, after the little entrance where the deacon uh, bring, we have the gospel come out amongst us. Uh, we then uh, have the reading of the Perkimenon, the epistle, uh, the gospel reading, and that is for us traditional time to then preach the gospel. And then right after that, there is a few litanies. It's kind of a bridge to then bring us into uh, the beginning of the liturgy of the table or of the altar. The anaphora, uh, and you can tell there's the deacon, once he says, let us stand aright, let us stand with fear, let us attend that we may offer the holy oblation in peace, that we are beginning basically the process of the liturgy at the altar. The holy oblation, I'm going to read this, this is actually from uh, Father Hopko's, the book at the, the first class where I pointed out kind of bibliography, uh, the four volumes, you can find them online of the Orthodox faith. Uh, this is from the second volume on worship, uh, specifically about the anaphora. Uh, I really heavily encourage, if you can't buy them, to look them up online when you have free time online, because I know I'm sure all of you have some free time online. Uh, you, If you're wanting, wondering things about liturgy about some history that is a nice go-to place where you're going to get a solid answer uh it's not always the case with online stuff so hopko when he talks about what is this holy oblation the holy oblation is christ the son of god who has become the son of man in order to offer himself to his father for the life of the world and his own person jesus is the perfect peace offering he is the one who brings us peace with god he is alone the one who brings God's reconciling mercy. This is undoubtedly the meaning of the expression of the, as the people respond, a mercy of peace, a sacrifice of praise, which has been a source of confusion for people over the years in all liturgical languages. There's a lot of question about what exactly those terms mean. In addition to being the perfect peace offering, Jesus is also the only adequate sacrifice of praise that men can offer to God. There is nothing comparable in men to the graciousness of God. There is nothing with which men can worthily thank and praise the Creator. This is so even if men would not be sinners, thus God himself provides men with their own most perfect sacrifice of praise. The Son of God becomes genuinely human so that human persons could have one of their own nature sufficiently adequate to the holiness and graciousness of God. Again, this is Christ the sacrifice of praise. When we are ready to offer the Eucharist, we immediately bring to mind the perfect offering of Jesus Christ. This embody, uh, this includes the cross. We usually immediately go to the cross, but this is his entire life is one offering of praise to God the Father. This as I could say in a way, this is kind of encapsulates everything that you want to say about how Jesus Christ saves us. There's a lot of theories or ways of articulating how Jesus Christ saves us uh, that usually boils down to like one metaphor. Uh, you will see in the church that we have, like scripture I would say, a lot of ways of talking about how Jesus Christ saves us because scripture, as we've been talking about Old Testament scripture as a womb with all of these, you have, prof, you have the prophetic ministry, you have priestly ministry, you have the kingly ministry, you have temple, you have all of these different ways in which God is mediating his presence or trying to save his people. What do you think say, salvation means? What does it mean to be saved? I think the typical answer would be like, I go to heaven, right? Liberated. liberated is an aspect of salvation. Being in communion with God. Being in communion with God. To be spared. To be spared? Is that what you said? Okay. See how we've already used a whole lot of metaphors and none of them are wrong. Uh, the church puts all of these metaphors because if you're talking about God and the way in which God is with us, I think you could kind of get to some like um, base metaphors or like the most 
Uh, and so what Daniel said in saying uh, communion with God, when you come into communion with God, this is what Adam and Eve lost, right? Uh, this is what he's constantly trying, like, I'm going to get Israel. I'm going to, I'm going to be present to them in the temple. I'm going to be present to them in the reading uh, of scripture. I'm going to be present to them in their leadership. I'm going to be present to them in a cloud. I'm going to be present to them in a flame. Like, I'm going to be, like, he's present in all of those ways. And he's also, like, then you have Exodus, the whole narrative of Exodus. I've saved you from Egypt. I'm bringing you to the, the promised land. All of that is, a, at heart, communion with God. So that you're spared from your enemies, from the demons, from death. You are healed. You are, and so a lot of us, like, there's nothing wrong with saying I'm saved in order to go to heaven. But that's like the, it's not that I don't get heaven now and I get heaven in the future. We are sitting in heaven at the divine liturgy. So there's a lot of ways in which the church presents all of these various metaphors, uh, but then enacts them. We actually do them specifically in liturgy or in baptizing or in anointing someone who's sick with holy oil and doing all of the prayers that we do. Uh, even down to when you're at home and you're praying, uh, you are bringing God into the temple of your own body and to your soul. So this all reverberates and works together because Christ has come in the flesh to offer himself in perfect praise and faithfulness to the Father. Now, let's keep going or we're never going to get through the anaphora. <laughs> uh, the, the priest then, you'll know that I'll, I will turn around at this point and give the blessing of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is quoting Paul from 1 Corinthians. And if we were... I think I have a document. I think it's mostly of Chrysostom's liturgy that basically just goes through the whole liturgy and gives all of the scriptural references that are happening. Uh, you may not know it, uh, but if you're in a divine liturgy, you are usually hearing basically constantly either themes of scripture or quotes of scripture all over the place. So in giving this Trinitarian blessing and blessing the people, uh, this brings another aspect of salvation in Christ is not a get out of hell, like get out of jail free card, right? It's not like that. So it is bringing brought into the communion of God, which means it is bring brought into a relationship with God, the father. It is because of the peace of Jesus Christ. He has reconciled us to the father. And as St. Athanasius, the great will say, Jesus Christ came and took on a body, became embodied, so that we might become spirit bearers. In the Greek, it's a nice like play on words. Basically, Christophorus, where you get the word Christopher, to be uh, spirit bearers. He came to take on flesh so that we and our flesh and our bodies can receive him into ourselves via the Holy Spirit. So that we enter into the relationship, the grace that comes from Jesus Christ, the love that comes from God the Father, and then the, the communion that comes from the Holy Spirit. So you will notice, and you have probably noticed in Orthodoxy, that we bring up Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all the time. We are Trinitarian at our core because that is what the belief of Scripture is. Uh, that is what we have received in the, in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, I say this uh, not to poke at, but just having grown up in a, a different tradition, it was really confusing exactly what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is. And we talked a whole lot about Jesus. We didn't really know God the Father and the Holy Spirit was a complete mystery to us. Now, there's some aspect of this is mysterious, uh, but it doesn't mean that we can't understand the, the specifics. So uh, Orthodox worship is always uh, addressing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The people respond to the priest, uh, this blessing, and with your spirit. Uh, in the Orthodox Church, there is not a, uh, while the clergy are specifically, a priest is set aside to stand at the altar. Uh, the priest couldn't just do that on his own. He always has to have the people present. Because we are going to have that meal with God on the side of the mountain with all of us together. Not just the priest who goes up and then everybody else is just kind of hanging out. Uh, 
the priest then says, lift up, let us lift up our hearts. And the people say, we lift them unto the Lord. Because, as I was saying earlier, we are lifting up our hearts. This is actually at the core of even if you were in a Lutheran or Roman Catholic background, you will be familiar with this phrase because this is an ancient, ancient part of the liturgy uh, that is in East or West, Latin or Greek. Uh, it's because we are having this meal in the heavens. So we're going to lift up our hearts to join him in the heavens. Let's go ahead and turn to the next page and begin with the long prayer that the priest does. I would ask people to read, but for the sake of time and also recording so can hear, I'm going to go ahead and read. O existing one, master, Lord God, Father almighty and adorable, it is truly meet and right and befitting the magnificence of thy holiness to praise thee, to sing to thee, to bless thee, to worship thee, to give thanks to thee, to glorify thee, the only true existing God, and to offer to thee this our reasonable worship with a contrite heart and a spirit of humility. For thou hast granted us the knowledge of thy truth. Who can utter thy mighty acts, or make all thy praises known, or tell of all thy miracles at all times? O Master of all, Lord of heaven and earth and of all creation, both visible and invisible, who sittest upon the throne of glory and beholds the depths without beginning, invisible, incomprehensible, indescribable, changeless. O Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the great God and Savior, our hope, who is the image of thy goodness, the seal of thy very likeness, showing forth in himself thee, O Father. And I'm going to stop right there. As you can tell, these are very long <laughs> sentences. Who is being addressed in this prayer? It's the very beginning of the canon for the Eucharist, the consecration of the gifts. God the Father, God the Father is being addressed. You will see at the end, or you may have wondered, have any of you wondered why we say the Our Father so late in the service? Has anyone ever wondered that? We say the Our Father... Because the beginning of the anaphora, right, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the oblation of peace. We have the relationship with the Father through whom? Christ, right? Because he has, as Paul talks about, he's adopted us into the household. He has made us the ability, given us the ability, as we say right before we say to our Father, uh, that we can even say Father, right? So we are in this prayer addressing, because we exist in Jesus Christ through our baptisms, uh, we're able to call on God as Father because of the relationship that we have with him in Jesus Christ. So when we are talking to God the Father, orthodoxy is never, how should I say this? We like to say, say a lot of things about how we can't say enough. <laughs> we, 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 we don't stop with one, two, three, four, we keep going. In a way, there's almost like a lesson in saying, like, you are indescribable, inconceivable, <laughs> you are without being invisible, indescribable, like all of these things are all true. They're little tiny different aspects or uh, ways of talking about God. And we need to hear that because God is incredibly unique. He is as the very beginning, and I know there's some debate about whether this is the best translation or not, but the existing one, you are God. And when we come to God, what do we see? We see the same thing that they saw uh, there on the mountain that Isaiah saw, that Ezekiel saw, that the prophets saw. What do they see? They see God enthroned, right? They see him on the throne of glory. He has granted us the knowledge of his truth, he has granted us knowledge through whom? How, do, how are we able to come and to know God the Father? Through his son, right? We'll hit the prophets in a minute. Yes. But we see, I, I began reading there in the very middle, O Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the great God and Savior. There's a typo there, not out hope. Our hope who is the image of thy goodness, the seal of thy very likeness, showing forth in himself thee, O Father, the living word, the true God, the eternal wisdom, the life, the sanctification, 
the power, the true light, through whom the Holy Spirit was revealed. What is this language of Basil's uh, prayer here? What does this sound like? We, we confessed this in another place, actually right before the anaphora. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God, true God of true God, right? Begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father. This is what uh, the Nicene faith, the Nicene faith being the Nicene Creed that we sing, that was what St. Athanasius the Great fought for against Arius, that Jesus Christ is one with the Father. We have access to God the Father. Uh, it is in Jesus Christ that we are able to know who the Father is, right? As scripture says, they say, we want to see the Father. And what does Jesus say to them? If you look at me, you've seen the Father, right? He is the express image, uh, the book of Hebrews. He is the enlightenment. As we like, I encourage you, you don't have to wait till when we do this in church. <laughs> you can print off and look at and read and pray the prayers that we do in the services because there is, you could just spend a whole week just thinking about Jesus Christ showing forth the Father. You could think, uh, pray about him as the living word, that he is the true God amongst all of the false gods that are around us. Continuing on, we also receive from Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, the gift of sonship, not sonship, <laughs> the gift of sonship, because through the power of the Holy Spirit, we enter into that relationship, right? We become sons, uh, joint heirs with the son, Jesus Christ, the pledge of future inheritance, the first fruits of eternal blessing. The life-creating power, not the loft-creating. This is obviously... I pulled this off the internet somewhere. This is obviously a draft. It was better than the other one that I was working with. This was better formatted. The fountain of sanctification. I love that image. A fountain of sanctification. Through whom every creature of reason and understanding worships thee and always sings to thee. A hymn of glory, not a human of glory. For all things are thy servants. The Holy Spirit is part of our redemption. He is what is given to us to receive all of these blessings. And if we were to break this down, this is a lot of Paul, 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 John, John, John. These are just quotes, right? Just of different scripture. We then are set back again to that throne room and remembering where we are and where we stand. Thou art praised by angels, archangels, thrones, dominions, powers. Those are all uh, different names for angels. Many-eyed cherubim, round about thee stand the seraphim, one with six wings, the other with six wings. With two they cover their faces, with two they cover their feet, with two they fly, crying one to another with unceasing voices and ever-resounding praises, singing the triumphant hymn, shouting, proclaiming, and saying... And this is the, where the people then respond and sing, Holy, 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 Lord of Sabaoth, Lord of the hosts. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When there is a fascinating, I keep talking about that we are actually sitting with God and being with him and will eat with him. Uh, when the people are crying out, Holy, 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 we are joining and being like the angels about him. We are uh, basically getting into the choir stands with the angels as we stand before the throne of God. The priest then says specifically this, with these blessed powers, that means with these angels, we cry aloud, O master who lovest mankind, we sinners cry aloud and say, holy art thou, truly most holy, and there are no bounds to the magnificence of thy holiness. Thou art gracious in all thy deeds, for with righteousness and true judgment, thou hast ordered all things for us. This is again uh, remembering his position as creator, that everything has been ordered for us. When you created man by taking dust from the earth and honored him with his, uh, thine own image, O God, 
You set him in a paradise of delight, promising him eternal life and the enjoyment of everlasting blessings and the observance of thy commandments. At the heart of paradise and communing with God, there was uh, delight, there was the communion with God, and this is all round about the keeping of the commandments, observance, observing of the commandments of God. Specifically, we can remember, don't eat of this tree. This is a boundary. Don't go beyond this. When man disobeyed you, the true God who had created them, and was deceived by the guile of the serpent. Now we have the presence of the demonic. Becoming subject to death through his own transgressions. Sin as division it is removing yourself from the basic life uh, that God sustains reality. So when we move ourselves away from him, St. Athanasius talks like this. Basically, we have a choice to move towards him and become sustained and real and alive, or we move away from him, and as we move away from him, we become sick, we shrivel up, we... we into nothingness. Yes, Arnold. Is Saint Athanasius up there on the? No, Saint Athanasius is not up there. Okay, I wish we we need to have a nice icon of Saint Athanasius. Um, but side, if you want to read, I, I highly encourage you to read if you want uh, to understand Orthodox understanding of salvation, uh, etc. Read on the Incarnation by St. Athanasius, uh, especially during this upcoming Advent fast or the Nativity fast, as we call it. Uh, it is, yes, it's about Christmas, but as, you'll, as you experience Christmas, Christmas isn't just Christmas. Christmas is the entire economy. Yeah, it's a Pascha. It's like the entire economy of salvation that we are always kind of in the, the Feast of our Lord remembering. Even in the Feast of Theotokos, we're looking at different elements of the way in which God saved us. So Adam becomes subject to death because he, in disobeying God, removing himself from the observance of the commandments, moving away from God, basically brought death upon himself. And God, in your righteous judgment, did send him forth from paradise into this world, returning him to the earth from which he was taken allowing him to dissipate back into dust, yet providing for him the salvation of regeneration in thy Christ himself. For thou didst not turn thyself away forever from thy creature, whom thou hadst made a good one, nor didst thou forget the work of thy hands. Through thy tender compassion of thy mercy, you did visit him in various ways. And this is, we've been talking about the last class, the ways in which God visited man. You sent prophets, you performed mighty works by thy saints, who in every generation were well-pleasing to you. You did speak to us by the mouth of thy servants, the prophets, foretelling to us the salvation which was to come. You also gave us the law as a help, for the law, as St. Paul says in Romans, the law of Israel uh, was a help. It was a tutor. It was something to inform them and make them understand who God was, who they were. You also appointed angels as guardians in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Daniel, for example, there is an understanding that angels are assigned as much as in St. Athanasius, he talks about how demons basically went out into the world and they basically set up shop and they create, they basically said, Hey people, I can do marvelous things because I'm well, a fallen angel. So now you need to worship me and idolatry is then born from this. So there is also, in the midst of the struggle, there is God who appoints angels as guardians over nations, over people, as we say in the baptismal uh, liturgy, that you are assigned a guardian angel. That's why we even pray to our guardian angel or to the heavenly hosts, because God appoints them as guardians for us. When the fullness of time had come, this is the language of Galatians, you did speak to us through thy son himself, by whom thou didst also make the ages. It is incredibly important uh, in the teachings of Scripture and the teachings of the fathers of the church that it was the one who created us is the one who saves us. The creator becomes a creature, and 
for St. Athanasius, there's like a justice that is that the God who created us didn't just let us go off and dissipate and kill ourselves, basically, come into nothing. He and the entire economy of salvation of the creator, then this basically divine operation, uh, like Operation Save Everybody, <laughs> he had to come down into the world in order to save that which was perishing. He, Jesus, who being the radiance of thy glory and the image of thy person, because he's truly God, one with the Father, upholding all things by the word of his power, everything exists because of him, thought it not robbery to be equal to thee, the God and Father. Philippians 2, right? He was God before the ages, yet he appeared on earth and lived among men, becoming incarnate of a holy virgin. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being likened to the body of our lowliness, that he might liken us to the image of his glory. There's a way in which you can think about an image of Jesus Christ uh, in his divinity. And I think this is part of the reason why when we right before we say, take, eat, this is my body, we talk about his holy and blameless hands. That he and the light bearing that we have, the feast of the transfiguration, where you can see the divinity comes from his body to remember that Jesus Christ, while he became fully human, he was fully God. His body was not going to die unless he submitted himself to die. He would have lived forever, right? His flesh was deified. Like, think about it. It's not that it was a puppet and then he's going to cast it aside, the, the body that he took. He became a man and he lived like one of us. He suffered like one of us. But as uh, this is from the book of Acts from the second chapter from Peter's sermon at Pentecost, uh, it was that he was not going to let his body decay when he died, but that the light of divinity goes all the way from heaven. It comes into this earth and then it goes even into the depths of the earth to death. And that light then destroys everything down there. We'll, we'll continue. I'll continue with that metaphor in a minute as we continue reading. Yes, please. That, you're absolutely correct. St. Irenaeus talks about uh, he, ha- he died as a fully grown man so that he could basically go through every, ele- like, every aspect of human life. So he had to be a baby. He had to be a child. He's a teen. And an adult, like, even if you're older, you might be a little bit more, but you're still a man, like an older person, right? Like you're an adult. And then he had to die because these are all human existence. So his presence comes into every aspect of human existence, even into the grave. So that he's filled even the grave and death with his light and with his life. For as by man entered into the world and by sin, death. So when man came into the world and Adam and his sin, death came into the scene. So it pleased thine only begotten son who is in the bosom of thee, the God and father, who is born of a woman, the holy Theotokos and ever Virgin Mary, who is born under the law to condemn sin in his flesh, so that those who are dead in Adam might be made alive in thy Christ himself. He lived in this world and gave us commandments of salvation, releasing us from the delusions of idolatry. He brought to us the knowledge of thee, the true God and Father. He obtained us for his own chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This, like Exodus, right? This is exactly what was happening in Exodus. I want to spend a little bit of time on condemning sin in his flesh. Condemning sin in his flesh, Christ, as we know from the book of Hebrews, that he took on humanity and uh, our flesh, but without sin. Uh, he is... Actually, I want to get to a little bit later. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, let's talk about idolatry first, and I'll come back to the flesh. Uh, in Jesus Christ, we have his teachings 
But we also have knowledge of God because God himself came and was with us and blazed a path for us so that when we die, we don't just stay in the earth, but we are going to be raised with him and be with him. This knowledge that we receive, um, let's see here. I'm going to skip that. I don't have time for that. <laughs> Basically, I was going to reiterate from St. Athanasius uh, that we, we really kind of lose aspects of the fullness of, as we're talking about all those metaphors of how we're saved, when we, and we should, because everything kind of converges on the cross as the, the symbol that kind of encapsulates all of these other metaphors that we're talking about. Because it's from the cross that we can look back and understand his birth, his teachings, how if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you can see really the cross stands in the middle of all of it. How can you be merciful? How can you be humble? How can you uh, pray in your closet? How can you turn the other cheek? How, if you embrace the cross, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to his Father, you're going to be able to live the Beatitudes. You will be able to do the things that God, uh, Jesus Christ preaches in the Sermon on the Mount. That we have received knowledge of God. You know, we grow, have grown up, especially in the United States, you grow up in Christianity is just the background, right? Like, it's just what everybody basically believes, roughly, if you might not be able to fill in the specifics, but there's a belief in Jesus Christ that somehow he's God, and maybe it's not all clear, but the fact that we are able to actually come into communion with the creator, that it is clear in the face of Jesus Christ that we can put aside idols, the death bearing idols is a key part of what our salvation is, that we are not uh, under the dominion of the demonic and the things that aren't going to give us life. They're going to, they're not, not only they're going to take our energy, our blood, our life from them. Uh, this is something that Athanasius talks about. If you look at early paganism, uh, it always is division, division, death, death, division, division, swords, uh, you know, sac blood sacrifices, literally the slaughtering of each other for the glory of God. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ, in giving us knowledge of God, uh, making us his chosen people and royal priesthood, takes us away from all the division, all the strife, uh, all of the blood that was from before. I'm going to stop right there. Are there any questions? Because I'm, I'm trying to roll through this whole thing. Okay. So, Chris, yes, Chris, the church, Jesus Christ, and being the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of all of the prophecies, the sacrifices of the temple are all found within Jesus Christ. So we're not all now, like, replacing the priesthood of all Christians or the Holy Order? Or? So the priest, ultimately, the priesthood of... So you're asking a whole lot of different questions there. Okay, so Jesus Christ uh, in Paul in, in the book of Hebrews and talking about his priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. It is not the Aaronic priesthood. It, it predates the Aaronic priesthood. So Christ's priesthood is more like uh, and rooted in the order of Melchizedek, as Paul talks about, because he's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's... He is the high priest. So any of our access to the Holy of Holies, to God the Father himself, comes through his priesthood. So my, all of us are priests. There is a clergy or ordained priesthood that is set aside to be able to stand at the altar and continue basically 
governance, shepherding, etc., of the church that you see through apostolic teaching. If you look through the pastoral epistles, there are those who are set aside to teach, govern, etc. So we all participate and have access and are made kings, queens, priests, uh, prophets, etc. But there are particular offices or things that are served in the church. Uh, there is, you say, the tribe of Levi, but all of Israel is Israel. Yes, David. Sabbath hosts, not Sabbath, because it looks like Sabbath, but it's not Sabbath. It's Sabbath, the hosts. So a whole lot of people, like hosts, like a army, a host of army, right? Any other questions? Yeah. So, this is actually kind of a question that was asked last week, because it'll be basically the same. So, one, I don't know how to answer a what if, besides what happened, because I don't know how to put myself in that spot of God. So, there's that aspect that I would say. Secondly, if, we're, if we stick with the metaphor that we've been talking about, the Old Testament as um, a tutor, a, 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 a teacher as Paul talks about, then we needed the time as humans because we don't immediately get things. <laughs> we have to be taught through images. We have to be taught through history. We have to be taught through all that. It was in, as according to scripture, the fullness of times that he came when he came. But the time, uh, there's that built-in time that is the preparation of Israel. Do what? So, is that what you're saying? Uh, no, not exactly, but I think that is part of it. I'm thinking more of it, it's kind of like your daughter can't drive a car. And you wouldn't even try to teach her to drive a car, right? She can't even, like, she can't even <laughs> put her foot down there, right? Uh, so there is an element of, like, not being ready. Uh, and needing the various... When I say metaphors, I mean like you need the institution of the temple. You need the priesthood. You need, even if God is like, you really don't need a king. All right, I'm going to redeem kingship because <laughs> you decided to follow the world, right? Uh, so, Father? Yes. Uh, one, one, thing, one thing that I point out in this also is, is it really was a perfect time at this point in, in history. I mean, you had... You had Roman roads that connect the whole known universe to the whole known world. You had the Greek language, which everybody in a language speak is a lingua franca of the whole um, world. You had you had a, a solid currency that was available in Roman law, and and Roman peace also that would allow that. Uh, it, it was a perfect time in history for this for this all to come down. At least that's one way I look at it as well. I think also it's worth there's just an interesting addition to that is how many other cultic and religious practices in the world at the time seem to somehow be anticipating or preparing for a savior or messiah. Like even if they didn't know exactly what they were expecting, like I mean there's a reason when the Magi come out of the East, like they were looking for that. They didn't know what it meant, but it was part of their tradition to be looking for it. So uh, I think that's that's I mean so there's also then the question of like, okay, but what about all the people who were in Peru or Chile or you know? Uh, well, we wouldn't we would not answer that the like there was a, a lost tribe of Israel who got on a boat and floated over to North America and then all of that. That's the Mormon answer, trying to basically understand all of that what I would say is what you have and this is part and parcel with the redemption uh, so I'm going to read a little bit more of the anaphora and then I'm going to weave that in uh, having cleansed us in water and sanctified us with the Holy Spirit he gave himself as a ransom to death in which we were held captive sold under sin 
descending through the cross into hell, that he might fill all things with himself, he loosed the pangs of death. He rose on the third day, having made for all flesh a path to the resurrection from the dead, since it was not possible for the author of life to be a victim of corruption. There's that element of like, he wouldn't, he, his body, he's not going to be a victim of corruption because he's the author of life. This is what Peter uh, preaches at Pentecost that he's drawing from the Psalms, actually. He made a path for all flesh. He, in descending through the cross into Hades, to hell, this is where all of the dead were. This is why the icon for us of uh, the resurrection, the Anastasis, has Christ uh, bringing up. He's, he's destroyed the, basically the gates of Hades. You can see it kind of shattered at his feet in some icons. And you can see him pulling out of their tombs Adam and Eve, basically ra- raising them up like the progenitors of all of us. Uh, there's also the tradition as in that harrowing of Hades and opening up Hades. You also have the tradition of John the Baptist, and this is rooted in, if I'm remembering off the top of my head correctly, a, a kind of obscure note in First Peter about the preaching to those, the, the souls uh, in the prisons, basically. You also have the tradition of the, the forerunner. He's the forerunner in this life, but then when he dies, he actually goes and he preaches and prepares the people in Hades for the coming of the light. So that when Christ goes into Hades, he is basically blowing the, the, the doors off of Hades and emptying Hades of all of those who had gone on before and died before. So whether or not they were in Israel or not, they had the gospel preached to them. Uh, whether or not they had been a part of, uh, you know, they'd been circumcised, they'd gone and offered sacrifices. They were prepared by John the Baptist and then encounter Christ and had the ability to receive him in Hades. So it's not like, well, shucks, I guess the millions of people in Peru and Chile or North America are just, you know, out of luck. But the, the, the church says they basically had the gospel preached to them and the opportunity to respond to it. That is because in giving himself as a ransom to death, uh, this is, most of us, I'm about out of time. So I make the decision. Do I just stop and start, keep going next week? I think that's probably what I need to do. Next week, we are going to talk, not next week, whenever the next, is it next week? I don't remember. Whenever the next class is, (laughs) we are going to talk a little bit more. I knew that I wasn't going to get all the way through. But we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, Christ's death, uh, what it means that he gave himself as a ransom to death, uh, what it means uh, that his death was life-creating for us, uh, what it means for us to then also partake in the sacrifice of Christ and the Holy Spirit coming upon us and upon the gifts offered. Uh, And then we're going to talk about... uh, his, all of this is kind of his kingly and priestly ministry. And then we're going to talk also about his prophetic ministry. I want to speak about the Sermon on the Mount uh, and the way in which we, uh, his, using that as his basic set of teachings for us to understand what the content of his teaching uh, was and how he saves us through uh, illumining the path, uh, the cross, and the way into the kingdom of heaven. Are there any last questions? I know that was pretty abrupt, but I also I'm trying to be before I go like an hour, thirty minutes over, and I don't want to do that. Yes. Uh, kind of to tack on to his question about priesthood, what is to be understood from the phrase "to loosen the mind," and like to what extent that passes to other priests or believers? So to loosen the mind, the sacrament of confession. Uh, we will talk about that at a, a later class when we get talk about the Holy Spirit and ecclesiology, uh, specifically the mysteries of uh, repentance, reconciliation, and confession, and their relationship with, with communion. Is there a book or something that you get that has like every liturgy that you attend? Am I saying the right words? Yeah, you're saying the right words. Uh, there is a lot of so deacon is thumbing through this is a service book that a priest or a deacon would use so it has all the stuff that you would never even hear me say but i'm silently praying there's prayers in here uh 
But there is online, you can look up and find, uh, we, even, we have a Divine Liturgy book over here. There's a single one? There's one left? I know where I can put out more. Uh, if you want a copy, that is for Chrysostom. I don't think we have a basal one. This has Chrysostom, Basil, and pre-sanctified, and you could learn how to serve like a priest. <laughs> right, it doesn't have the people's parts. Or it has like a little bit, not always, because sometimes the... I can give you, I can send you one. Yeah, definitely. We can do that. Yes. All right, let's close with prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and through ages of ages. Amen.